Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's Roundup, the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Yeah, howdy doody. We have back on the show Brian Hugh of New Bloom Magazine. Brian, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold, longtime contributor. Good, good to have you back, Ross. Good evening. Today on the show, we got a jam-packed program for you. Uh, of course, next Tuesday is the 70th anniversary of the 228 massacre. It's going to be marked here in Taiwan and also, to the surprise of many, in China as well. We discuss. Then, follow-up from last week's deadly tour bus accident continues to spread. Official heads almost rolled, but then they didn't. Those resignations uh, were not accepted in the end. But we did get a whole bunch of new bus tour regulations. So I know you guys uh, don't want to miss out on that. Then in the second half of the show, we'll get our central Taiwan correspondent on the line to discuss massive protests in Taichung and Kaohsiung, staged earlier this week urging the government to take action on pollution and climate change. Got some more Taiwan fraudsters that have been nabbed in faraway lands, in this case Spain, and are now slated to be carted off to China. So we'll look for a new angle on that old story. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. And last but not least, we will look at the growing backlash to President Tsai's pension reform plans. And along with that, also new this week, uh, we'll look at the backlash to that backlash. But first, pathogenic bird flu is how we're going to open up the show today. Yum. Tastes like diseased chicken. But we've got some uh, good bird flu news, if you can believe it, to start off the show. Last week, of course, we discussed the spread of the H5N6 strain in poultry farms in Taiwan's center, south, and a little bit in the southeast. The government slapped on a seven-day transportation ban of all poultry to stop the spread of the disease. Well, it uh, looks like that measure may have worked because as of today, agricultural authorities are lifting the ban, Gavin. Yeah, the Agricultural Ministry yesterday on Thursday lifted the ban from today being Friday, saying, this is Agriculture Minister Lin Songshen, said that the ban on the slaughter and transportation of poultry was lifted because animal health officials believed that outbreaks had slowed down during the past week. So they're saying basically there hasn't been so many outbreaks reported over the past week since the ban on transportation and slaughtering of chickens and ducks and geese was curtailed for seven days. There was a fresh outbreak, however, in a Yunlin County poultry farm this week. And after that outbreak was confirmed, um, animal health officials said that that outbreak brought the number of outbreaks at poultry farms island-wide this year to 33. Mm. Of course, they weren't all the H5N6 subtype. Some were the H5N2, some were the H5N8. Just all the H5s. Just the h 5 Just the H5s. Just the H5s, basically, yeah. And looking at the same report that you're looking at, I see that uh, as of Wednesday, some 281,000 birds have been culled and destroyed. So a big hit to poultry farmers. Yeah, these these outbreaks have been confirmed in Jai County, Zhanghua County, Yilan County, and Hualien counties, and also in Tainan City. Okay. Still, though, uh, if you've been watching... The spread of this thing on the international front, not quite as bad as we've seen in other countries. In Japan and South Korea, they faced bird coals in the millions. That, so, was, the, that was the same H thingy six one, yeah, in Korea. Yeah, H5N6. 33 million. Mm-hmm. 33 million yeah. pieces of poultry, birds were culled there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 345 poultry farms yeah, yeah, yeah. in South Korea, yeah. So 
if that's any indication of how bad this can get, you know, getting off a little bit light there. And just so these numbers mean something to our listeners, we kind of broke this down last week, but just to remind you, uh, H5N6, uh, the health officials tell us, is something that's very dangerous to birds, has a hard time spreading from birds to humans, has an even harder time spreading from humans to humans. So in that way, the spread is fairly limited. However, uh, when it does spread to humans, the uh, fatality rate, the mortality rate is uh, very high. The figure that I've been told is 70%. So scary disease, but uh, lucky for us, it looks like it's in remission at this point. Uh, hopefully won't spread much further. We got a, got a bit of bad bird flu news, though, as well this week. Uh, there's another strain, in addition to the H5N6 and all the other H5s, there's another strain to keep in your mind right now, that being the H7N9 strain of the disease. That that virus made an appearance in Taiwan late last month, actually, when a Taiwanese traveler returning from China came to Taiwan carrying the disease. He's actually still in a hospital. That's a 69-year-old man that was carrying that disease. So far, he's the only person to be confirmed uh, with that disease, but in China, or in Taiwan anyway, but in China, uh, it spread a little bit further. Isn't that the one they're worried about, having medication doesn't work on it or something? Right. So that's the bit of bad news. Thanks for getting me refocused. That's a bit of bad news that came out this week. Uh, Researchers this week, we've known about that H7N9 case for a while, but researchers came out and said it looks like it's mutated. That particular strain has mutated, and it's become resistant to viral treatment. So So speaking of bad news, then, this is all somewhat bad news for the new Council Council of Agriculture uh, chairman, as well as the new Minister of Health, because they they have no honeymoon period. They're going to have to confront these issues. And and obviously, there's an extraordinary amount of media attention and high public expectations that the bird flu won't won't spread and that there'll be a a dependable supply of fresh chicken at reasonable prices. Uh, So very, very tough spot for these two new ministers uh, to take up their post amid this outbreak. Because, of course, they had the, the geese, the goose farms, of course, were affected a couple of years ago, wasn't that? That, really, that was two years ago. That and that, was, and that's completely killed the market for goose meat in Taiwan. And believe it or not, now still goose meat is quite expensive. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that the goose farms in Taiwan have bounced back yet. It's, not quite. No, no, no. We're still not the price I last paid for a plate of goose. <laughs> that's for sure. Right. So, uh, last quick note that we're going to make on this is just to inform our listeners uh, once again. I think we made this point last week, but let's make it once more. The CDC is urging people to cook poultry and eggs thoroughly. So if you like your eggs over easy, you might want to scramble them for a little bit. Uh, Wash your hands with soap and water, wear surgical masks, and you're also going to want to seek medical attention uh, if you possess flu-like symptoms. And uh, most especially, tell your doctor if you come into contact with birds. uh, And also, don't come into contact with birds. Just don't do that. That's like not a thing to be doing right now. Moving on to our next story, and the 70th anniversary of the 228 massacre is fast approaching, coming up next Tuesday, in fact bringing with it some interesting public statements on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Here, of course, we're talking about the 1947 incident in which an anti-government uprising was violently suppressed by the newly arrived Republic of China government, resulting in between 10 and 30,000 deaths, depending on who you ask. The event is seen as a watershed moment in the history of Taiwan that set the stage for martial law and the white terror era, which makes it a little bit surprising, Gavin, you know, given that the sort of mythos that this has taken on in Taiwan, especially among the independence-minded folks here in Taiwan, 
comes as a bit of surprise that officials in China have announced that they're going to have their own commemoration ceremony next week for 228 as well. Yeah, these are my favorite quotes of the week. This is An Fong Shan, a spokesman for China's Taiwan Affairs Office. And earlier this week, he said the 228 incident was a just action by Taiwanese against a dictatorship and to fight for their basic rights. And he went on to say... It is part of the Chinese people's liberation struggle. I don't quite know where to go with that, because he next turned around and said, for a long time the incident has been used by certain Taiwanese independence forces for ulterior motives. And this chap in Beijing went on to say that these such people have distorted historical facts, instigated contradictions based on provincial origin, tearing at Taiwan's ethnic groups, creating antagonism in society. And he went on, great line, I think the motives behind this are really despicable. Basically what they're getting at there is they're trying to reframe the incident. Of course, here in Taiwan, it's remembered as uh, an event that really kind of marked the trajectory of many years of Taiwan history that saw antagonism between the newcomers from China and the the local Taiwanese. And uh, that's how it's largely still seen today. Obviously, these uh, Chinese officials are trying to reframe it to some extent, although I'm not 100% picking up on how they're exactly they're no, trying they to reframe the point, it. they didn't they, really? Yeah, it was. It was. An there weren't a ton of CCP no, no, officials no. on the ground in no. Taiwan at the time. No, maybe they're watching that fake news. It could be <laughs> fake news going on everywhere. Uh, so Taiwan, uh, over the last couple of weeks, Ta- Taiwanese officials and non-officials have come out, kind of rebuking the CCP comments. In particular, the presidential office. Uh, has said that the key to commemorating the 228 incident is to remember that the real master of the country are the people and the state should be built on a foundation of liberal democracy. So again, uh, taking a bit of a different frame here in Taiwan than that uh, line that we just heard from Gavin is taking. Brian, you've written a little bit on all this. Uh, maybe you can lay out exactly what we're seeing here. What, what, what is, uh, how, how exactly are these Chinese officials trying to reframe this event, and, and why might they be doing that? Mm. I mean, you know, I think there's a general pattern of, uh, of China trying to subsume local histories of different you know, areas that it claims as part of it into the broader narrative of Chinese history. So, you know, this is true of, you know, Tibet or Xinjiang or Hong Kong or anywhere, really. And sometimes this, you know, this is sometimes very often, most often, it's very ancient history, going back to, you know, 5,000 years of Chinese history. Whereas, you know, this is kind of unusual because it's it's a very recent event. Um, the odd thing, though, is that, you know, the KMT in Taiwan still often downplays the 228 incident. You know, they claim that it was just kind of an odd accident. You know, it wasn't the the precursor to authoritarian rule. It's just kind of a, a you know conflict that got out of hand. And you know traditionally, of course, this has been pushed for by pro independence forces or the Pan Green camp. Um, so that China now wants to commemorate it is somewhat odd. Does it mean that you know China realizes that its strategy taken of you know backing the KMT to the hilt is not working? That it wants to change gears and try to co-opt elements of the DPP? Or is this just, you know, part of the broader attempt to, you know, subsume all local histories into a broader Chinese history? That's really hard to judge. Um, I mean, I think a lot of times China really doesn't know because it's, it's Taiwan policy is sometimes very contradictory between, you know, attempts to wage cultural, you know, to use cultural ways of, of encroaching upon Taiwan between political means and between economic means. And sometimes the strategy is not always cohesive. So, mm. yeah. Ross, what are you seeing there? Well, cl- clearly the, the Communist Party is uh, going back to its roots of saying you know, we're the savior of the Chinese people from the evil KMT and 
uh, Japanese as well, and that this event was an event perpetrated at the time by the evil KMT when the communists were battling to overthrow the evil KMT and liberate the people of China, which in the communist view includes the people of Taiwan. Obviously, many people in Taiwan would disagree with that view, but that is the Communist Party historical narrative that we, we – we are fighting, or we were fighting at the time, against the evils of Chiang Kai-shek and, and the KMT nationalist Republican government. Uh, and this was yet – the 228 incident was yet one more evil thing done by the nationalist government to the Chinese people, again, which in the Communist Party's view includes the people of Taiwan. And thus, it's only a small number of splitists in Taiwan, or as Brian alluded to in, in other parts of China, who are trying to twist the history. Uh, you know, This would be a, a very traditional Communist Party view. Obviously, this doesn't go down well in Taiwan. Uh, so not going to reverberate here. Uh, no one in Taiwan is really going to pay attention to the commemorative events that occur in China, actually, I, I, I think somewhat sadly, is even here in Taiwan, we seem to be more focused on the enjoyment of a four-day recreational holiday than actually uh, taking a more somber moment to reflect on the terrible events of that day. Um, I mean, the CCP, the you know, the Chinese Communist Party, they always like to paint, you know, to say that there's this kind of essence of the Chinese people, you know, that the Chinese people everywhere across the world are struggling for liberation. You know, it's not very clear sometimes liberation for what or, you know, from whom or, you know, what you define as Chinese. I mean, you know, they claim all overseas Chinese. Um, you know, they claim they, it's very ethnic in nature. But, you know, there's always this notion of just striving towards joining the mainland and somehow they're trying to abrogate the 2 incident into this. I mean, part of it might be directed at, you know, domestic perceptions of Taiwan or, you know, domestic knowledge of Taiwanese history to try to, you know, fit Taiwan into the framework of, you know, Chinese ethnic people across the world striving to be part of this great thing, China, as part of, you know, liberation, whatever that means. Hmm. Well, uh, one person who is in maybe a little bit of a more of a somber mood this week would be President Tsai Ing-wen. She took this week as an opportunity and the upcoming 228 uh, commemorations as an opportunity to call for more investigations into the incident, Gavin. Yes, this is speaking yesterday when she apparently yesterday on Thursday of this week, she met some over, an overseas group of family members of some of the victims of, of course, the February 1947 incident. And Tsai told them that her government will carry out a thorough investigation into the incident and find those accountable. She went on to say that the government will pursue those responsible and change the current status of only victims but no perpetrators. Yeah. She also called on society to reflect more deeply on the mistakes of the incident, learn from it, and move towards reconciliation and create what she called a democratic, just, and united nation. Right, and also interestingly, uh, earlier in the week, she also kind of drew parallels between what's going on in Taiwan and uh, in Germany and their current ongoing efforts to, you know, kind of continue gathering more information and facts about the atrocities during the 1930s and World War II. So it uh, seems like she kind of wants to follow that model and, and keep some form of an investigation ongoing. Uh, Ross, you know, it, we, we, it, this seems like something that's been fairly thoroughly investigated. Uh, what what can be done at this point? Well, the, the difference with the approach in Germany uh, and other parts of Europe to events in World War II and reflection and investigation 228 are, are numerous. One obvious one is the lack of prosecution. And of course, the, the 
party state of, of the KMT lasted in, into the early 1990s, and that made it impossible to prosecute any perpetrators uh, of the 228 incident. But even moving forward now to 2017, there, there's still a lack of education uh, amongst young people. And that is a great digression from what occurs in Germany and other parts of Europe where where there is a a much greater level and awareness of the the history uh, of some of the sins that their own countries may have committed, right? It's It's not just uh, in Germany, but other countries as well that reflect on their collaboration with the perpetrators of the Holocaust. Uh, and, and people are aware of that. Of course, there are people who are revisionists uh, as well in Europe, and that's an ongoing problem. But but the education of young people in Taiwan, uh, not only about the Holocaust, and we know about the incident a few months ago uh, with high school students wearing Nazi uniforms, which attracted a lot of international attention. Uh, but but even – and we could also you – know, Brian is very knowledgeable about these things uh, – the education of young people about the 228 incident, you know, what they learn in the school system, it could be better. Uh, so uh, I think President Tsai could have focused more on the education because investigating, as Gavin said, we we, we, we know the facts. We know the perpetrators. The perpetrators have long since passed away, so we're not going to prosecute anyone. We're not going to go after their families to get, take back their pensions, although we'll talk about pensions later in the program. Uh, so what, it's questionable what you can do uh, as far as identifying perpetrators. I, I think a better thing and building a better more just society, more democratic, more transparent society would really be to dramatically improve the education of young people. And, and frankly, I think turning this into a four-day weekend where the focus is on, on le- leisure and recreational activities rather than reflecting on, on the, the tragedy of that day is, is sending the opposite message of what should be sent about this terrible event. Um, yeah, I think that's totally true. Um, the paradox is that a lot of this returns to the fact that I think the 228 incident, that's, that's safe territory for Tsai to address. Because, you know, many of these perpetrators have passed away. I, you know, the, the comparison to Germany is one that's, you know, people like to raise a lot just to compare tragedies in terms of magnitude. You know, there's, ov- there's often the Holocaust comparison. And, you know, Germany is seen as a paragon of traditional justice, whether in Taiwan or elsewhere. But, you know, the 228 incident, that happened 70 years ago. So, you know, these people are dead. Um, whereas with the white terror, you know, many of those people that, that, you know, committed those crimes are still alive and, you know, they, they haven't been targeted in cases, you know, very late into like, let's say the 1980s, even as high profile a case as, you know, the murder of Ling Yishan's family is quote unquote unsolved. Um, so the Tutu incident, that's safe political ter- territory for Tsai. Uh, Tsai really doesn't want to rock the boat too much, I think, because, you know, she doesn't want to come off as politically persecuting the KMT, which, again, raises questions of Taiwan's democratic transition. But the paradox is that for Taiwan to transition into a democracy from KMT authoritarian rule, that meant a lot of people were not persecuted. They were allowed to kind of remain within the political system. So I think, I think that's, that's the bigger questions, and maybe Tsai does want to use the Tutu incident and addressing that as a way to not deal with some of these problems regarding the white terror as a whole. Well, Brian, as someone who, who looks very closely at uh, youth movements and younger people, mm-hmm. uh, how, how would you view their interest or knowledge uh, in learning about this incident? Again, I, I would say that it's lacking. This needs to come from the adults. It needs to come from the 
the president or the edu- educational system and impress upon younger people uh, about uh, the, the importance and the long-term impact of this incident. And, and yes, it does lead to uh, discussion about white terror or possibly even prosecuting perpetrators of white terror. But, but again, I, I think the starting point is we're, we're turning this into a, a recreational holiday and, and really not focusing. We're not giving the message to the younger people of Taiwan. Uh, you know, you know, Brian, maybe you have a view. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe younger people do appreciate the importance of this incident while they're enjoying a four-day holiday. I just don't see it, and I think that's uh, – it, it's adding to the tragedy. Yeah, I think it is definitely true because, you know, there is there is still incredible lack of education about 228 because, again, it is politicized territory. And so, you know, taking too much of a stance on it is sometimes seen as, you know, siding too much with the DPP. Um, that's an issue even among people that are, you know, in their 20s. Like, they don't – sometimes they learn about 228 only really very late in their, you know, educational career, like after high school or in college and so forth. Um, I'm not so sure now among the younger people that are currently in high school and whatever, but um, there's still lack of knowledge. A lot of activities, though, in recent years to raise awareness of 228 have been organized by young people. Um, for example, the largest commemoration event um, of 228 nationwide, the Gongshen Music Festival, that's entirely organized by young people. And that was like one of the kind of organizations that, that was part of the, the kind of civil groups that you know eventually came together to, to create the Sunfire Movement. Mm. Well, for folks up north looking for a way to commemorate these events, this weekend uh, there's actually going to be an exhibition at the Taipei 228 Memorial Museum. Uh, The exhibition also marks the museum's 20th anniversary, so it's going to be a special exhibition this weekend along with four outdoor concerts scheduled from Saturday through Tuesday. So a good place to visit this weekend. Well, we're going to round it out on that note, but we do have one more story to get to before we get to the break. The fallout from a deadly tour bus accident that left 33 people dead has continued into this week. It's riled the Thai cabinet and led to moves to clamp down on some of the riskier forms of bus tours. Let's start in officialdom, though, Gavin. Uh, Three top officials have tried to resign over the incident, but so far none of those resignations have been accepted. Yeah, earlier this week, or earlier this week, it was announced that the head of the Tourism Bureau and the Directorate General of Highways had offered to resign last Sunday. That's Zhou Yonghui and Chen Yenbo. And, well, the Transport Minister, He Chen Dan, said he basically refused to accept the resignations. So they didn't resign. And basically the Transport Minister's point was, don't resign now because the issue of responsibility can wait until after the investigations into the accident have been concluded. That's what he said when the two officials tried to resign to take responsibility for the accident. Now, apparently, Her Chen Dan came to light after we heard about the Tourism Bureau head and the Directorate General of Highways trying to resign that Her Chen Dan himself had tried to resign. And the Premier had refused to accept his resignation citing exactly the same reasons that he cited for that. We got to we got to figure out what happened, guys. Don't 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 jump the gun. Don't jump the gun. Well, whether it's just political theater to, you know, do the stagecraft of showing remorse or whether these guys really think that it's time for new blood, I guess we'll have to leave it to them uh, to know that for themselves. No way to tell from the outside looking in. The one thing we do know for sure is that a whole bunch of new regulations are about to clamp down on the very specific type of bus tours that uh, we saw in the incident last week. And we're talking here about like single day bus tours that keep the drivers behind the wheel for hours and hours and hours on end. Long distance one day bus tours, in fact. Mm hmm. 
And the, the bus tour is cited to cover trips from Taipei or Kaohsiung to Alishan, Nanto County's Qingjing Farm, Taichung's Uling Farm, Kending in Pingdong and Hualien. It's very specific. Yeah, and they also said very that, specific. Apparently, they also said that there's going to be they've cut back on the the distance bus drivers can travel. So it basically said two companies now considering these long day tours need to have two drivers in the bus mm-hmm. so they can basically switch back and forward and they said the maximum they can drive is 300 kilometers uh, in, that's on ordinary roads on ordinary and roads t- the maximum they could drive was 200 clicks on mountainous roads okay so i mean i'm all for safety but 300 kilometers is not that far I mean, that's that's what? That's four hours of driving, maybe? Well, not necessarily, because it's a tour bus. You're not necessarily driving straight from A to B. Yeah. You're going from A to B, maybe to C to D, E to F to get to Z. You see what I mean? You're st- it's a tour bus. You're going to certain but if you places. But if you count every link on the note, I mean, that's that's really... I, 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 I've been in tour buses that drove way more than that in a single day. Well, I was on a bus in China many, many mm-hmm. years ago that didn't stop for nothing for <laughs> three damn days. So, yeah, and they didn't and, change the driver at all. And you're lucky to be out of that? It was good fun at the time. It was good fun, I wouldn't yeah, so- do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also have to keep in mind in many parts of Taiwan, especially in the scenic areas, the the roads might be in mountainous areas. And Mm. and to be fair to to the drivers, yeah. So uh, although the distance might not sound very far as measured by kilometers, for example, uh, they are small roads. They're roads that are prone to uh, rock slides. Uh, Other drivers drive dangerously, which does require the driver of the tour bus to be especially vigilant and hopefully well-rested. But uh, there's a broader issue here, which of course is the uh, lack of enforcement of existing regulations. And uh, whenever these incidents occur, we do find out that the management uh, was uh, remiss uh, in certain aspects of, of the operation of the business, not complying with safety requirements, inspections of the vehicle, et cetera, uh, the number of working hours without a break, et cetera. This seems to happen over and over again. And the reaction then is to lay on more regulations. And there'll be a show, as there's been in the last few days, in the coming days, saying we've inspected every bus company and uh, we have new regulations. And uh, unfortunately, we could predict with confidence that this kind of incident will happen again. And we'll find out again that the operators and and the the various stakeholders involved were cutting corners and that, that leads to tragedies like this. Mm. Well, I must say that the only way to really deal with this, if you really wanted to stamp it out, is to hold some of these tour bus company operators and owners responsible. Mm. Directly, yeah. Not a very nice thing to say after so many people have died, because obviously it's not the thing you want to talk about, but eventually the government's going to have to hold some of these bus tour company operators responsible. Mm. I think it is fundamentally a labor issue because, you know, like it came up during this that, you know, they, the way they define... A lefty guy thinks that there's a labor well, issue unsurprising, here? unsurprising, unsurprising. <laughs> no, it's okay. He, that yeah. said that. He's still humming the international. <laughs> <laughs> That's not... Okay. It's going to be um, our theme music today. Yeah, I mean, they, they came up during this. They, they were defining the hours that drivers, you know, drive as, you know, when their hands are on the steering wheel. So there, there are always these ways they try to get around the regulations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not going to change without really monitoring these companies or taking steps to punish them. There, think, it, it does seem like they're trying to find every single loophole to exactly. count as few hours as actual working hours as possible. Exactly. And I think it does return to the fact that, you know, the tourist industry in Taiwan operates on, you know, extreme cost cutting. You know, it's getting as many people into 
the buses and, you know, saving as much money on the buses, even if it means, you know, cutting corners on safety equipment and then making these drivers work as long as possible for as, you know, little pay as possible. Mm. And so will that change? It's, it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, I think a lot of times the government is so concerned with the profits that come out of the tourist industry, which are, you know, seen as sometimes seen as vital to Taiwan as a whole, that they kind of allow this behavior to go unchecked because, mm. you know, they're just sure that tourists will keep coming in even if incidents like this keep happening. Well, related to what you were just saying there in terms of cost-cutting and all that, the free tours, the zero-dollar tours uh, that are in place uh, are, are now apparently banned as well. So basically those were tours where the idea was the tourists don't have to pay anything for the bus rides and getting shipped around all day, but then the tour companies make that money back by getting kickbacks from the stores mm. that they cart everybody to. So apparently yeah. those are illegal now. Well, they, 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 they banned them after, I hate to say this, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but they banned them after the previous tour bus accident. Mm. So mm. I guess they're going to enforce that now. They've got no choice, really, have they? Yeah. Uh, and in addition to that measure, there is also a recall and inspection of 166 buses of the same model that was involved in the crash last week. Uh, and that is going to sort of be aimed at boosting public confidence as we come into this long weekend. So a lot of measures, a flurry of measures that are out there. As Ross said, we'll have to wait and see whether or not, you know, actual enforcement and actual follow through kind of holds on as the memory of the most recent tragedy fades in our mind. But we're going to have to leave that story right there because we have a whole second half that we want to get to. When we return, the hazy, polluted skies of central and southern Taiwan are starting to make folks angry. Imagine that. They like breathing, too. We'll talk about recent protests in both regions. Then we'll update two long-running stories, the administration's embattled push for pension reform and deportations of ROC nationals to China from somewhere else in the world. So, still a lot more to dig into when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Brian Hugh, and Ross Feingold. Jumping back in, and Sunday saw thousands of people take to the streets of Taichung and Kaohsiung to protest the severe pollution problems faced in both cities and the region. To give us the view from Taichung on the Taichung protest, we have on the line ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Hello, Donovan. Hi, good evening. And so there were protests held uh, both in Kaohsiung and Taichung, as I just said, but it seems like the real action was in your neck of the woods in Taichung. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the highest estimates that I saw were up to about 14,000, uh, although most estimates put it under 10, but uh, it still it was definitely a good turnout. Um, now, what's interesting is who turned out and who didn't and who said what. Um, now, it was uh, Li Yunzi. He he came, the Nobel laureate, of course, uh, who famously is credited with tipping the uh, 2000 election. Um, he came down and uh, and spoke, uh, and um, Wei Minggu from uh, the Jianghua County Commissioner came and spoke. Uh, of course, Wei Minggu spoke about uh, green energy, which is, of course, his big push. Now, t- what's interesting is who didn't show up is uh, is Taichung Mayor Lin Jialong. 
Uh, now, that is kind of curious because he's been a major campaigner on this issue and has led uh, a lot of city government initiatives that are right now sort of stalled by the national EPA to shut down uh, Thai powers, to bring down uh, Thai, the Thai power, the largest coal-fired uh, power plant in the world uh, here in Taichung, bring, it down, bring down their emissions by 10% a year annually for at least four years. And he got a pass through city council, but the EPA is sort of sitting on it right now. So, and he's, so he's been quite vocal on the issue, but he didn't show up at the rally. He sent one of his uh, vice mayors. And oddly, on Facebook, he almost kind of chided the public. Um, he did speak about, you know, his concerns about air pollution, but then he went out, went kind of on a rant on... Uh, on the public, saying that 70% of emissions in in the city came from individuals, which is a, a statistic I'm not sure where it came from, but he said 70% comes from individuals with their personal vehicles, uh, restaurant cooking emissions, burning uh, you know burning ghost money, setting up firecrackers, and things like this. And so he basically said, it's up to you, the public, to solve the problem. Now, the protest was organized by a, a large number of medical professionals. This is, this is quite interesting. There's a lot of different medical, medical groups came together. And so there's a, a major medical turnout on this and a major medical aspect to the protest, which is also quite interesting in that they spent a lot of time highlighting the medical impacts of air pollution on the public and the number of people that it impacts every year. Mm. So it seems like a, a quite a large turnout. Now, based on just the reports that I'm seeing in the morning paper, it looks like a theme that was kind of hit a lot uh, among a lot of speakers that attended the event was this idea that central Taiwan, southern Taiwan, they're really bearing the brunt of this pollution issue, but it's the policymakers in Taipei up north uh, that are the ones that are kind of dragging their feet to deal with it. And they're hoping that understanding of what it's like to live in this kind of pollution is, you know, spread to those policymakers up in the capital. Uh, did you pick up on anything like that, sort of a, a growing sense of regionalism in uh, the struggle against pollution? <laughs> well, it's a lot bigger than just pollution. <laughs> um, um, basically, yeah, Taipei, you know, I, I just you can talk about pollution, you can talk about press coverage, pretty much outside of ICRT, uh, the entire the entire English language coverage of central central or southern Taiwan is translated CNA stories, whatever they sort of deign to translate. Uh, it, basically, if it's not in Tianlong War, it doesn't happen. Um, so there, there's a lot of, I think, frustration in central and southern Taiwan over kind of this uh, sense that Taiwan, Taipei reaps the benefits and dictates what happens down here, and we bear the brunt. You know, for example, when you had the gas explosions in uh, Kaohsiung, and, uh, you know, all the people died, of course, where does all the tax money go? It all went to Taipei. You know, the, the, you know, the, the tax money and the corporate headquarters are up there, but the explosions happen in Kaohsiung. The air, you know, the corporate headquarters of Thai Power and all these companies are up in Taipei. Taipei gets the tax money, the central government gets the benefits, Taipei citizens reap the benefits, but we get the air pollution. And, you know, I mean, 
we can see the air pollution here. But up in Taipei, when they're making the decisions, they're making the, the policy choices, they're not only do they get the benefits, they don't actually see the costs of what they're producing. Mm. Didn't Chen Zhu try to get those petrochemical companies to move their headquarters to Kaohsiung shortly yeah, after the explosion? Uh, she she definitely pushed hard on that. Yeah, didn't she have a couple of companies have already moved there? I believe now. Yeah, I, I think she she had some success. On what that. about? I mean, is the Taichung city government planning to do something like this? Not that I'm aware of. No, um, I mean the thing is with Thai Power, it that's they're 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 scattered all over the all over the country, and of course now that the DPP is in power, I don't think that uh, the local DPP government is going to challenge the DPP central government on this. You know, when Tenju came out and, you know, she kicked up a fuss on this, which was, you know, c- completely right. She, um, But she was kicking up a fuss against, she was an opposition party against the the KMT, which, you know, obviously at that time, uh, you know, was in power. And, of course, they they could, you know, she wasn't, bucking her own party, whereas right now, if, for example, Lin Jialong was going to try and get Thai power to relocate to Taichung, first of all, Thai power is, to be, to be fair, dispersed uh, around the island, but also, uh, you know, now it's, Thai power, of course, is basically, a, you know, a say, more or less, it's a puppet of the central government. Hmm. Now, just to wrap things up, looking forward, of course, Vice President Chen Jian-ren did give a little bit of a response to the protests that happened last weekend. Uh, he said, uh, basically, that the government is determined to face the air pollution problem, along with the global warming issues that are kind of related to those pollution problems. But, you know, the measures that he was calling for were kind of wishy-washy, kind of unclear exactly what it's going to look like when the government takes that on. What do you expect to come out of Taichung uh, in, in the future? Is that anger going to stay there? Is that mobilization going to stay there? Or, or, or is that not terribly sustainable? No, it's going to grow. Um, it's been growing for years. Uh, there's uh, the, the frustration and anger has been growing um, and uh, frankly, the, the it, it, I, I think it's going to it's going to get more explosive if the central government doesn't act. The local governments here started with Yunlin uh, when they passed their they passed a law uh, a couple you know, a couple years ago um, that was going to shut down coal fired uh, power plants in Yunlin, and the then the EPA uh, under the Ma government shut it shut down the law saying that they you know that that they didn't the local government didn't have the authority now Zhang, both Zhanghua and Taichung have passed laws also to sh- to start shutting down coal fire coal fired power plant emissions but both governments laws are now being basically sat on by the EPA they're they're not moving as far as far as anybody down here can tell i mean it, maybe it's moving maybe it's not but doesn't look like anything's happening, really. Um, it's been bounced back and forth, saying, "Oh, they need more clarification. They need more information. They need more, you know." And they haven't outright rejected it, but they're they're not moving. Uh, now the now Taiwan's government has said that they are going to move away from nuclear power and all of this. But you'll notice that the date that she sent 
on, you know, and, and of course, what I believe is 20% renewables uh, by 2025, which is, if she serves two-term presidency, would be one year after she leaves office. So basically, any I think that she, that the the Taiwan and her government uh, is assuming that they're going to fail. That's what I, I think they're setting themselves up to be able to wash their hands of it and move away from it. Oh, Gavin, I've got his quote. I've got Chen Jian Ren's actual quote from his jolly Facebook page right in front of me. Here we go. He said, following the rallies at the weekend in Taichung and Kaohsiung, the government will definitely work with the public and private sector in efforts to avert the hazards caused by air pollution and global warming. I apologize. That's uh, clear as day. Clear as day. Yes. It's a, a, a veritable white paper right there. <laughs> Probably what that means is they're going to subsidize face masks. Something like that. Something like that. Well, I'll sleep better knowing that more folks out there have face masks, I for one. But with that, we are going to have to round that. We also sleep eh? because we know Donovan's breathing it in on us. Uh, yeah, well, and that just gives him what the smoky hero. radio voice. What a guy. He goes out there and does one for the team. Every morning he wakes up. Man in the field. For the team to keep our lungs clean here in Taipei. <laughs> Man in the field. Thank you, Donovan Smith, for that and many other reasons. We thank you, Donovan Smith. And, of course, uh, we will have you on uh, in the near future. Thanks so much. All right. And moving on, got two more stories to jam out before we wrap up for today. First, they played that old Taiwan news standard this week. It goes something like this. ROC nationals commit telephone fraud out of country X, then find themselves deported not to Taiwan, but to China. Notable recent examples of this very story include the Kenya deportations, the Malaysia deportations, the Cambodia deportations, and a little bit further back a couple of years ago, the Philippines deportations. This week, country X, Gavin, is Spain. It is. These deportations hark back to December of last year, early December of last year, I believe, when Spanish authorities raided several what were referred to as high-class villas in Madrid and Alicante, to name two such places. Because if, if you're going to do telecom fraud, might as well do it in well, class. You might as well do it in a villa in Alicante. Why not? There you go. That's the dream of the 21st century, be able to work from any office around the world. Yep. Smart work right there. Anyway, it, at the time, 260 or 270-odd people were arrested in these raids, and it's now come to light that 218 of these individuals arrested were ROC nationals which, of course, led China to jump up and down, stamp its feet and go, we want them here. Spain initially said, OK. Now, because it's Europe and Spain, it has to go to a court. And a court is going to decide, I believe, in early, early in March next month, whether to deport these ROC individuals to China, as has been requested by Beijing, or deport them to Taiwan. This is a court has to decide. The government in Spain has said we're going to deport them, but, of course, it being in Europe, it has to go to a court for a final decision. All right. So that is the broad outlines of the story. My problem is you thought these clowns that do this fraud in China would have learnt by now because, of course, all this, every time this has happened before, we've had the argument if they enter the country from China, they get deported to China. Now, I don't believe these 218 clowns all entered Spain from China. 
But I'd like, but Gavin, I'd there's like another issue here, Gavin. There's the not issue, another issue. Yes, the Gavin, the there issue is. You've been arguing Ga- ever since this happened is if you go to country X from China and you break the law and rob people or do anything to people in China, they can legally deport you to China because you arrived in the country from China. No, international, Gavin, that is international not fried the issue, Gavin. Coming to you from cited. Taiwan this week. Now, Gavin. I can't believe they all went to Spain from China. All right, Gavin, all right. Ross, uh, what's your point? Can we defer to the lawyer? Uh, <laughs> The issue, very reasonably, frankly, from the perspective of both China and Spain, is that China has has indicted or has an arrest warrant out for certain individuals who committed crimes in China. And they happen to have been caught in Spain. It almost doesn't matter where the people have been arrested. China's put out a warrant for people. And so we're, we're looking for someone. And the authorities in, in a jurisdiction – uh, happen to arrest the person, and, and China's saying, hey, we've issued a valid warrant for that person's arrest. Send us back. So if, if the countries have uh, some kind of judicial cooperation or, or extradition agreement, uh, that is the issue. Uh, a secondary issue would be the, the, the port of embarkation and, and whether a country would deport uh, somebody who's entered the country legally or they want to throw out for any reason back to the port of embarkation, regardless of the nationality of the individual. But the primary issue here is that the Chinese authorities have issued arrest warrants for certain individuals. They've been picked up in Spain, and China is saying, send us these individuals. We have a valid arrest warrant. Uh, from putting aside issues of uh, how we feel about the Chinese judicial system, that is the core issue here, that they've committed a crime in China, and China says, hey, you got this person that we're looking for. They committed a crime in our country. Send them to us. And if they haven't commit- committed a crime in Taiwan, it's a little unclear what Taiwan's claim is uh, uh, to, to the government that has detained these people to send them to Taiwan. Of course, the police operation that saw these individuals arrested was a joint operation between Spanish and Chinese um, law enforcement officials. Doesn't change the analysis. No, it, I didn't say it did, but that's what it was. So? It was a joint operation. Uh, that What Gavin just brought up there does kind of bring up uh, some of Taiwan's response to all this. Of course, you know, uh, predictably, Taiwan protested the decision from Spain. Uh, They also kind of called out China and called on them to resume cross-strait consultations because uh, from Taiwan's perspective, basically what they're saying is if we don't work together on these cases, not only does that cut us out of the loop, but it also, you know, you're you're, you're cutting out uh, a large resource for collaboration and information and evidence to catch the bad guys. So if that's something you really want to do, more collaboration is a good idea. So that's what we've been hearing from officialdom. Brian? Um, Yeah, I mean, China claims to be, quote-unquote, very involved here. Um, I'm not totally sure what that means. But I think the interesting thing about this case is compared to previous cases that, for one, you know, in previous cases, very often it was a mix-up of Chinese and Taiwanese. And this time it did seem mostly to be Taiwanese. And the other thing is that, you know, this is the first time it seems to have taken place in a, quote-unquote, Western country. So I think the way Spain handles this will be very interesting because Spain is not directly in the purview of China in the way that, you know, Asian countries, you know, China's next door. So I think, I think the how, you know, this story is going to recur in the future because, you know, unfortunately, telecom fraud from Taiwanese operating abroad is, is a large problem and there are many rings operating in different parts of the world. But so in the future, I think that this, this one might have some precedent for, you know, how, what, at least in terms of how it's perceived and how the Taiwanese government responds to it and so forth. Yay, we found a new angle, kind of, almost, sort of a new angle. But shouldn't the, the view of the, the Taiwanese government actually would be similar to the view of the previous minister of justice under the Ma government, who, who basically said well, they might have committed a crime, and now they're being sought, and they might be prosecuted for it. Uh, let's just 
keep putting out the message. Don't commit telecom fraud yeah, thought, in, in other countries. We're not going to come help you. You would have thought one of these 218 people would have read the damn newspaper over the past year and a half or two years, really, wouldn't you? Well, the the the... the <laughs> The legitimate pushback from the Taiwan side should be that these people are falsely accused. But if they're not falsely accused and they really did commit the crime, of course, innocent until proven guilty. But if they've been uh, indicted under a, a valid process, as valid as China could possibly get. But, but look at it this way. As you mentioned, the extradition is going to have to satisfy the Spanish and the EU concepts of justice. right? So whatever documentation the Chinese side provides is going to have to satisfy the European standard uh, for, for extradition to China. If it does satisfy those Western European standards, then Taiwan's claim is very weak if they haven't committed a crime I, in Taiwan. Taiwan's claim disappears if they haven't committed a crime in Taiwan, if that's the case. Well, but they haven't. We know that right now. So then why should they be sent back to Taiwan? All right, and there you have it. We're going to have to let that be the last word today, given that uh, we're a little bit outgunned in terms of uh, legal expertise. We're going to move on to our final story for the broadcast portion of the show. We all knew pension reform was going to be tough, no matter how much it might be needed for the sake of balancing the government's checkbook. It's just a, it's a tough sell. You're basically telling pensioners, you know that money that we promised you? Eh, we need some of it back. We can't give it all to you. So, uh, obviously, as needed as it may be, it's going to stoke some anger. Well, this week, the opposition to the government's pension reform campaign reached a fevered pitch when hundreds of veterans rallied outside the legislative yuan in opposition to the plan. And when I say hundreds, we're talking about 1,500, Gavin. We are talking about 1,500 former military personnel. Specifically military veterans. Basically, specifically elderly veterans of the armed forces. Mm -hmm. They rallied outside the legislative UN, as you said, because they were claiming the government is touching and meddling with their pensions. Hands off our pensions, screamed the veterans. Mm -hmm. Now, of these 1,500-odd veterans, 800 of them have formed a sort of a revolving sit-in outside the legislative UN. And there's 800 of them for a reason. Mm-hmm. And they're calling themselves the 800 Heroes. Mm. This refers to a group of, of course, Chinese soldiers who defended a warehouse against Japanese troops during the Battle of Shanghai in 1937. Okay, so... What's more interesting, though, is, of course, I believe they're being um, led by someone. Uh, a, re- a former retired general called Wu Sehui is leading this protest. Now... Okay, he's a former soldier. He doesn't want his pension touched by the government. He leads these people. He's a general. He knows how to lead soldiers. He leads the protesters. Unfortunately for Mr. U, he has a bit of a bad rap here in Taiwan, doesn't he? Because, of course, he sparked controversy when he attended a state ceremony in China last year in honour of the 150th anniversary of the Republic of China's founder, Sun Yat-sen. He was one of the generals that, of course, got photographed when he went there. So this is interesting because, I mean, you guys have discussed this on the show before, the fact that the pension issue also kind of raises societal uh, divisions in a lot of different ways, you know, obviously in terms of whether or not you're a government bureaucrat or or involved in the civil service and those who are not involved in the civil service, but also in terms of, you know, historically, those that have been favored by the national government and those that have not been favored by the national government. 
And this week's events really threw those divisions into stark relief because just yesterday, uh, the Taiwan Solidarity Union, members of the TSU, went out and sort of staged a counter-protest. That's what I was alluding to when I said the backlash to the backlash. Uh, And they brought up a lot of the points that Gavin was just making, basically saying, you know, you say you're one of the 800 heroes, but here the leader of your group has gone over to China and participated in in events over there. And meanwhile, you know, those 800 heroes, they made lots of sacrifices for the war effort. And the point that you guys are making is basically give me more money. Uh, at a time when perhaps the government should be focusing on balancing its checkbooks. So a lot of interesting issues raised by all this. Uh, Brian, what do you see here? I mean, you know, of the groups that are that are upset currently because their pensions are being touched, uh, teachers, civil servants, and military personnel, I think the public will be least sympathetic to the military personnel because, you know, there's a way in which the way they're phrasing their demands just does not, you know, resonate with Taiwanese society at all. You know, referring to the history of China, uh, having a, you know, actions within recent memory of going over to China and, you know, cozying up with with the Chinese government and so forth. Um, you know, the accusation from people that are pushing for pension reform has oftentimes been that these these political groups are being manipulated by the KMT or that they're being you know, this is the KMT orchestrating this these protests from behind the scenes as a way to attack the DPP. And, you know, the military groups are the easiest to hammer on that front because, you know, of the kind of ROC nationalism, the events, the pro-China sentiment and so forth, which is why, you know, the TSU would use this up as an opportunity to attack them. And even then, they could have actually maybe pushed the point further. So I think that, you know... I don't really see this getting much ground from the military personnel, especially. Mm. But the sitting is going to go on for a month, apparently, according to General Wu. Yeah, they're 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 promising an extended protest, and I, I think that they said that you know even after the protest is over, if their demands aren't met, they are prepared to carry on some other vague action in the future. Well, I think there's a concern because uh, uh, Brian identified that within the with the, the public perception, the military veterans are going to be. Uh, looked upon least favorably compared to teachers or civil servants. Uh, But uh, what does it say about people who are in the military today? How are they going to feel about this, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially in uh, more senior officer levels? Because uh, people at senior levels in the military would have interacted or or, uh, served under the people who are protesting, Mm -hmm. uh, depending how close they are in in age and when they were serving in the military. Uh, So there are concerns that if if Brian is saying that uh, the public is going to be mad at veterans, uh, that that actually could have some impact on people currently serving in the military as well. And then it it also leads into general public perceptions about the military. And and we know that there's been tremendous difficulty in attracting people willing Mm -hmm. to join the Mm -hmm. professional army so that the conscription... uh, program could be terminated uh, in its finality, which hasn't occurred yet, despite many attempts. Uh, So uh, I think it's very, very unfortunate uh, if the public perceptions of veterans and or military personnel generally are turning negative, especially at a time when Taiwan's facing increased military pressure from China. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last point from Brian, yeah. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing about the pension reform is that, you know, these are groups that Tsai really does want on her side. So she has to find some solution that also satisfies them because, you know, she does obviously need civil servants to run the government, teachers to teach, and, you know, the military to serve in the military. Um, But how that will be achieved remains to be seen. I mean, also just there is the definite view that the military is a bastion of, you know, ROC nationalism, that, you know, teachers sometimes teach a, or they're they're mandated to teach a ROC nationalism to students, and that, you know, that the the government is oftentimes the refuge of, you know, pan-blue sympathizers among civil servants. So, 
it's a tough quandary. And I think it ultimately does go back to, you know, Taiwan's checkered history with authoritarianism and how many questions have not been resolved. Mm. Right. And perhaps in an attempt to square that circle, President Tsai Ing-wen has, in fact, promised to treat military veterans preferentially uh, during the reforms that are being formulated. Uh, These pension reforms are still being formulated, so we are kind of arguing about boxes that haven't quite been filled in yet. A lot of question marks there, but uh, we're going to get some answers over the next couple of months. Are they being formulated live on television on days of the week? I believe. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you want to see those boxes getting filled in... You could tune in your cable TV and watch them live. Woohoo! Which I did the other day. Oh, yeah? I was channel hopping. Mm-hmm. But I hopped over it quickly. <laughs> you hopped to it and hopped away. You're channel hopping, in between hopping the interweb, Gavin. Yeah. Many kinds of There's hopping. nothing wrong with hopping the interweb, Ross. <laughs> it's the internet. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, uh, we are going to round that one out right there and move on to our final podcast story before we talk any more about Gavin's home life. Let's uh, let's talk about the crazy news of the week, which is how we like to end all of our podcast shows. Gavin, what do you have in terms of crazy Taiwan news huh, this week? we got netizens. Netizens? Those dodgy people on the interweb. Oh, you found them while you were on the well, hopping the interwebs. Hopping the interweb, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're calling for a boycott of Starbucks branches here in Taiwan. Now, this boo. Com- boo. Yeah, boo. This comes after the coffee house chain announced plans to hike its prices this week. Speaking of serious issues that we should all take right. seriously this serious weekend. Issues. Starbucks and its prices. Brian, call out the student protesters. <laughs> <laughs> Assemble. Yeah, we can all go down there and hum the international together. There we yeah, go. There we and go. We're not drinking your coffee. Yeah, I mean, where, 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 where would that leave, you know, the bohemian hipster crowd if right. they can't swill their coffee in well, public I places? Know. I mean, who goes to Starbucks? <laughs> I don't. Of the bohemian hipster crowd. I don't crowd. drink coffee. Anyway, we haven't even gotten the story out. We haven't even gotten the story out. This story doesn't affect me and I don't care. Anyway, Starbucks raised the prices this week for 29 types of coffee and tea beverages. Now... The prices, the price hikes range from five NT to twenty NT, mm-hmm. and somebody worked that out, and it ranges from about like goes sixty. Some of that was like over sixty percent, a sixty percent rise on some of the drinks. Hmm. Not many though. Starbucks drinks are really expensive. <laughs> yes, they are. And but actually, uh, one of the great things about living in Taipei is. Uh, for cafes, for places to spend an afternoon quietly or meeting friends. Uh, There is a wide range of choices. Uh, There's several large chains at different pricing points, uh, very expensive to fairly moderately priced. And there's also an extraordinary number of small kind of uh, one-man, one-woman proprietor, uh, very interesting little cafes with great coffee, uh, whose prices also vary because they might be offering very expensive uh, unique coffees or more more cheaper coffees. Uh, so, uh, Gavin, or, or they're just charging you for the seat. If you go to Da'an, you're lucky to get a seat for less than 100, 150 NT. Those can be pretty expensive, even at the mom and pop spots. Oh yeah, and some of the places you're you're also paying for the atmosphere. And when Starbucks first came into the market in the late 90s, that that though, to be fair, it was something very new and a nice atmosphere. Uh, to enjoy a coffee with the music and the seating, etc. Uh, of course, now, as you said, they can be very crowded and noisy. It's it's not a uh, quiet getaway from the chaos outside. Uh, but again, there, there are other options to to have coffee. So uh, that that's one of the great things about Taipei. But I'm not sure how this I'm not sure how this boycott is going because, like I said, I don't drink coffee. 
so I don't go to Starbucks. But Starbucks did say that the increase in price was due to a rise in the cost of raw materials and basic operational costs. As an econ major, as somebody who has studied economics, I don't understand responding to a rise in price with a boycott. I mean, if people are willing to pay, they pay. If you're not willing to pay, you don't pay. That's how pricing, you know, that's how hey, supply and demand, baby. That's hey, how it works. Starbucks does operate 408 outlets here in Taiwan, and it last raised its prices in October of 2011 when the price of milk went up. There we there go. go. Um, there's a long-standing rumor, which I've never looked into, if it's true, that you know the Seven Elevens and the Starbucks have the same owner in Taiwan. So you know, well, it's rumored. Is, it's not a rumor. They're, they're both president. President yes. group. So, so the rumor is that that the beans in the Seven Elevens, you know, are the same beans from Starbucks. Just you know, you can charge much higher at the Starbucks. But again, you get the atmosphere, right? You get the That's the right. seat. You get yeah. the fluffy the fluffy chair and and uh, screaming children running around. <laughs> <laughs> and the Wi-Fi that never works. So the, the the Starbucks closest to my house actually has a seated area uh, in a different building from where you buy your coffee. So if I were smart, what I would do is I would buy my 7-Eleven coffee and I'd just oh. walk straight into the seated area. And technically, I'm still giving money to them by, by this logic. So maybe I should start doing that. I could save about 80% of the price. <laughs> well, if, if you don't feel like going out uh, and while you still have a chance before the government makes it difficult for them to operate, you could call... Uber Eats and have them deliver coffee to your home. Uh, that would be option. really sad, wouldn't it? That's sad. <laughs> Sitting alone at home. You wake up alone. You pick up the phone. Who and you pick who up said, your who said he's Who said he keeps alone? That's a good point. That is a good point. Okay, you wake up and you can't even be bothered to make a cup of coffee. Seven Eleven actually offers delivery for coffee. I, I I would never try it because you know the clerk that comes is just the Seven Eleven that's twenty feet out, twenty feet outside your door. Exactly. That's Seven Eleven exactly. Well, well, below where I live. Well, that's if incredible. I can add in a, a couple of more somewhat boring business and, and economic perspectives. Maybe Go we'll, on. Well, you, know, you did mention your econ major, and would you like to share with us the leftist school you went to? Berkeley. Thank you. Uh, we, we see there's a leftist conspiracy with, <laughs> of this program. But uh, there is also the issue of, of changes to the labor law, which large employers have expressed their concerns that it will increase their, their labor costs due to uh, the requirements as far as working hours and overtime and things like that. Uh, so uh, we knew these costs would be passed along to consumers. And then there's another issue, which is simply the cost of importing raw materials, food materials uh, from outside Taiwan. And Taiwan's tariffs on a lot of imported food products are high. Uh, so uh, if the coffee drinkers are really upset, rather than boycotting Starbucks, then uh, Brian, again, you could get them out onto the street to protest the import tariffs on imported coffee beans. But who has the energy to protest when you can't even afford coffee? I mean, it's really a catch-22. Well, then Starbucks should be handed out the caffeine to get the protesters out there to demand vicious, lower tariffs. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. A vicious cycle. And I'm glad I don't drink coffee, so none of it affects me whatsoever. <laughs> well, you have a natural high. All right, we'll have to round out the show right there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Right about 8.15 every week. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. You know where to look. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Bye-bye. Brian Hugh. Good evening. And Ross Feingold. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.